Well, I feel comfortable sitting because I can see you all. And although I would be equally comfortable standing, I feel like sitting. So, you know, an interesting thing is that that uh, statement of watching the uh, origin of the nose, a sadhu from India challenged Sri Yukteswar on that interpretation. The Sanskrit is snasi kagram. And he said, uh, the agram means the front. And he said, what well, is the front of the nose? Here. Well, I don't know Sanskrit, and I couldn't challenge him. But I later thought, but uh, uh, a word like front has many, many different meanings. It can be the beginning of a, of a thing. And uh, so I looked up in the Sanskrit dictionary that I have, and it said that avgam means front, origin, for, foremost, beginning, all of those things. Well, where does the nose begin? Here, not here. So this is no center, no spiritual center. <laughs> As Sri Yukteswar said, yoga is difficult enough without making you also cross-eyed. <laughs> this is the center. And in fact, it's a very interesting physiological fact that uh, the frontal lobe of the brain is the part of the brain that has been, you might say, added in evolution to, human, to the human mechanism, let's call it. The uh, body of dogs goes, the forehead goes straight back. This frontal lobe is the seat of intellect, discrimination, and uh, of ecstasy and higher awareness. And it's a very interesting thing, too. The ego, which I have talked about here, and I'm going to talk about again in a moment, is actually centered here in the medulla. Everything is somehow some center in our body. Love is centered in the heart. And no love-stricken swain has ever said, I feel a broken knee. <laughs> they feel broken in their heart. This is where they feel pain. When you feel an expansion and deep calmness, it radiates from here. When you feel sexual desire, it radiates from the second chakra. The, all the different chakras are associated with different um, states of consciousness, different uh, levels of awakening in the astral spine. And it's a very interesting thing, too. In the Mahabharata, when Arjuna wins Draupadi, he comes to their home, and uh, the story goes that he calls to his mother and says, I have won a prize. And the mother says, well, you must share it with all your brothers. <laughs> and uh, this is unheard of. Polyandry is uh, accepted and expected in Tibet, but not in India. <coughs> to marry several men, one woman marrying several men. But in India, it isn't, uh, I know of no other case. There may be some, but I've never heard of them. What it really means is Draupadi is the Kula, uh, Kula Kundalini. And the different Pandavas are five in number. Each of them stands for one of the chakras. Yudhisthira in the um, cervical center here stands for dharma, self-control, and calmness. Not, not so much self-control, calmness and expansion. The heart, bhima, is the air element, and this is the, the uh, 
feeling side of human nature. This is where we feel feeling. And you see that Bhima was sort of uncontrollable, and sort of always exploding, and needed to get that feeling under control so it could be directed upward. Arjuna was the Navi chakra, the lumbar center. And this is a, an interesting thing. You know, there's a Navi kriya, which is concentrating on the navel and chanting Om while looking up at the Kutasa um, Chaitanya between the eyebrows. The idea being that this is the top of the three materialistic centers, and you need to awaken that to magnetize them, to draw the energy up there, and then direct that energy upward. Another important thing is the heart. It says in the uh, Srimad Bhagavatam, meditate on the heart as though it were a lotus and direct all those rays of the lotus upward toward the brain and toward the point between the eyebrows. And uh, then the lower two chakras, it's interesting, they are of another mother, same father, different mother. And uh, they are twin brothers. They are the um, lowest two and represent the really materialistic involvement. And the, the second one up, the um, uh, Svadhisthana, or sacral center, is connected with the sex nerves. And uh, all these have their physical counterpart. The Navi is connected with the, in, uh, with the digestion and so on. The lowest chakra deals with the lowest functions and the limbs, uh, the lower limbs, the legs. And it's very interesting that we all know these things instinctively. When you see people dancing with a heavy beat like this, it means their energy is downward. When you see them dancing more with their arms, it lifts the energy. It indicates an upliftment of energy. We all know that when a person feels downcast, he sort of slumps. And when he feels uplifted, he sits straight and looks upward. These are all things that are universal knowledge. We don't have to say, well, our religion teaches differently. It can't, because truth is universal. Now, the interesting thing about the medalla, you've noticed, probably in yourself, but certainly you've seen other people, when they are flattered or when they feel proud of themselves. <laughs> Their energy is here. This is where it's centered. This is why the, um, there is a statement, and it's quite valid, that genius and madness are closely linked. You know what happened in the, 20, in the, in the 18th century? The artists like Bach and Mozart and so on, they were not high, highly regarded in society. They were servants of various lords and bishops and so on. Poor Mozart was almost looked down on, in fact, treated rather like dirt by his stupid bishop. And yet they had genius but they express genius. It's wrong to say somebody is a genius, but he can produce works of genius. That's something else. Genius is something that inspires you. It isn't something that you are. But in the 19th century, after the beginning and the sort of launching and movement of the Industrial Revolution in the West, 
there came to be a certain sort of rejection and revulsion against that thought of life being only nuts and bolts and machinery. And people with an aesthetic sense began to feel that we are precious souls. We're something different. We're aesthetics. We're aesthetes. We know what beauty means. And you, uh, you materialists, you're just in your own world. And what this did was feed their egos. And you notice that quite a few artists became mad. Van Gogh became mad. Schumann became mad. Hugo Wolf became mad. And this hence came the statement that there is this very close relationship between genius and madness. It shouldn't be so. But the reason it can be so is that if you have a surge of energy coming up the spine, which when you're inspired does happen, if you allow it to become blocked here, then you see even the beginnings of it in people and they start going like that. They're almost already becoming dizzy. <laughs> you have to release it there. This is why, again, universally, the gesture for self-surrender, for respect, for honoring other people, for loving God everywhere, and it doesn't depend on your religion, it doesn't depend on your rituals, it's universal. It's a bow. What is the real meaning behind a bow? A release of tension back here and an offering of it forward. Because people don't know what it's all about, they just snap up and, like the two men who were dignitaries getting on a train, after you, your honor, no, after you, your honor, after you, your honor. The train left and they began, they came to, <laughs> They came to blows. <laughs> well, what we must understand is that although we need to overcome the ego, and in doing so it helps to feel that you are doing it through me, because we need to get rid of this thought of I as long as we identify it with this body. The truth is you can never get sense of that get rid of that sense of I. It's who you are. God is in you. God is your ego. And as a means of helping yourself to understand that your ego is not this little self, it's the infinite, you bow to an altar, you offer all praise to him. But who is he? He really is you. And so we come to this teaching that we have today, the eternal now. The ego is your own central reality. You can never have another. And once you've stripped away all the self-definitions, you suddenly discover that that little center is everywhere because there's no time or space. What you are in your little core is everything in the universe. And so when Master had that experience of cosmic consciousness, and you know, I don't, I have read much mystic literature. I have never read anything to compare with his poem, Samadhi. It's a fantastic thing. Even Ramakrishna, and mind you, I am not comparing the two in the sense of their merit, because you cannot compare great masters. Ramakrishna was a great soul and a great avatar. But there are differences in their outward expression. And even Ramakrishna, when he, he wanted to, he could have done the same thing if he had wanted to. It wasn't God's mission through him. But what he was trying to do was to show people that this is beyond 
all human cogitation, you might say, and cognition. And so he reached a certain point and he couldn't speak anymore. St. Teresa of Avila, because all religions are one, you can't speak of Hinduism and Christianity and Buddhism and so on. There's only Sanatana Dharma, the eternal religion of the whole universe. But uh, when you come to that point, then you see, Teresa of Avila said, when you reach the fourth stage of prayer, you can't think anymore. And yet you are highly aware. Descartes was just a total ignoramus on these things. He said, I think, therefore I am. The truth is you have the intuition to understand that you are, and therefore you are capable of thinking. You cannot trace consciousness back, uh, back yourself back to the layer of consciousness to rationalize what consciousness is because you have to use consciousness to rationalize. There is no way that science can reach that castle from outside inward. It has to begin from inside. There are two things that you simply cannot analyze in such a way as to really understand. Eye consciousness, the consciousness of being, and feeling, citta. Chitta really means feeling. Vivekananda described it as silencing the waves of mind stuff. Actually, vritti means whirlpool, eddy. And yogas chitta vritti nirod means to calm the whirlpools of feeling. What are those whirlpools? That's what we're talking about today. You have to get rid of all those things that draw back to yourself and define you. And the eternal now is a good place to begin because we think, well, I'm living today. Yesterday was Saturday, tomorrow is Monday. Last year I was such an age and next year if I live long enough I'll be that age. What I did as a child is not what I am today as a woman or a man. All of these things are little self-definitions which we sort of like tramp cyclists pack into our backpack and trudge through the mountain, mountain trails trying to find our destination and getting more and more weary all the time. I remember just as an incidental thing, but sort of fun because I happened to think of that image that I, was, I had read in this, when I was 20, 22, I had read in uh, this little short world Bible that was on my mother's shelf, shelves, bookshelves, about uh, different little quotations from the scriptures. And I read that it said in the Bhagavad Gita that you should go to a solitary place and meditate upon me. And I thought, well, first I will go up state New York and try to find a solitary place where I can meditate. That was a disaster. <laughs> and it began by my total ignorance of camping out. All of you will <laughs> laugh at my stupidity. But uh, I didn't know. Anyway, I set out on a bicycle. Well, I don't know if there were bikes with gears in those days. I doubt it. But I know that I didn't have one. <laughs> and when I started bike, high, uh, bicycling, up those steep mountain roads. Ah, ah. And I was getting more and more tired. 
And finally, I found a meadow. And I had a poncho, and I spread this poncho out and decided to lie on the field, thinking this is how, we would, how one does this sort of thing. I didn't know about sleeping bags. I didn't even think about dew. Well, <laughs> I woke up sloshing about <laughs> in this lake of water. And <laughs> the only thing I could do was get up and start around 3 in the morning, bicycling again. And it went farther and farther, but I was determined not to sleep in another field. <laughs> and uh, I couldn't find a single village. And I went, and I went, and I went, and I was so worn out. I went about 115 miles on this one-speed bike up these mountains, down the, but mostly up, it seemed to me. <laughs> and, uh, I finally saw a sign pointing to a town. It was two miles off, and I said, oh, that's where I'm going. So I went there, and I saw a sign, bed and breakfast. And I went in and collapsed in a chair, and I said, I'd like a room for the night. Oh, I'm sorry, we've been meaning to take that sign down. <laughs> I said, is there any place where I can spend the night here? They said, yes, there's one just down the road. I said, would you please ask them to come and get me? <laughs> I collapsed. I just slept the whole night, 12 hours. I thought I would die. My heart was just going like this. That was be the beginning of my um, going into a solitary place and meditating on me. <laughs> then I found a little place near Indian Town, upstate New York. And uh, I thought, well, I, I needed to have some money to live because I didn't have any, but uh, I would work as a lumberjack. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, uh, the rooming house where I was staying, the lady said, you're not their type at all. <laughs> Fortunately, I never found that lumber camp. <laughs> but there were deer flies, and they were biting me all over the place, and I said, I can't. I just don't think I want to be a lumberjack after all. <laughs> and so I set out from that town, and I came to a farm, and I thought, well, let me work here. Well, this character was one of the um, beautiful, simple, charming, uh, simple, basic native country folk that Rousseau talked about. <laughs> the noble savage. I played the, I was in his mind playing the comedia, comedian through his comedy act. And he just uh, kept laughing at me and taking, poking jokes at me, and I never said anything. And he said, must you keep slapping your mouth? <laughs> that was the height of his great comedy routine. He was an absolute fool. And I thought, am I going to really find peace out here in this country with deer flies and foolish farmers and stupid people? And uh, um, I left. and. Uh, I came to a center, uh, to a, a factory where I thought maybe I can earn some living. By then I was thinking of finding, uh, getting enough money to go off to South America and live in a jungle, as I told you. And I got a job in a sintering plant. And the woman there who hired me said, you're not going to last a week. You're not the type. <laughs> and it turned out to be perfectly true. The, People on this job were absolute fools, I have to say. And uh, because I refused to speak 
and didn't want to get involved in them. One of them kept saying, can't you, st can't you stop speaking? And this was the height of his comedy routine. <laughs> and uh, anyway, not to go, go into it at length, I got a job then in an inn on Lake George. And uh, this, this man was an arrogant type, but he hired me because I came from Scarsdale, which is a rich suburb, and he thought, well, this would add luster to his, his hotel. He treated his own relatives who were from Europe just like dirt. They were working in the hotel. And I got so fed up with him that I, I, uh, I had discovered Tolstoy's book, War and Peace, and I was reading that. So I thought, well, let me stay long enough to read this book. <laughs> and it was a great book, I have to say, probably the greatest novel ever written. And uh, I remember him, some people came in, and he, he snapped at me, front, boy, front. I said, did you ask for me? Did you want something? I wasn't going to have him treat me with such indignity. And uh, he finally, he didn't like me at all, but I finally left there. Anyway, that was my experience of seeking the life of the simple, the simple life in the country. Thank God I found Yogananda. <laughs> anyway, this backpack, this was entirely a sidetrack, but this backpack of self-definition, part of it is this thought of yesterday and tomorrow, this thought of last minute and tomorrow's minute, and can this ever get, will we ever get over this? We'll never get over it. You might as well settle into that thought that it will never end. I remember, again, another slight sidetrack. Poor old Norman, he was a wonderful man, had great devotion, but he had terrible moods. And he used to go through these moods, and he came into my room where I used to do my office work, and uh, he would sit on my bed and just sort of... And there was this cloud of misery... I remember saying to him one time, because I was always sort of a cheer cheerful, upbeat kind of fellow, and I thought it would help him, but uh, I'm afraid it didn't. I said, look, Norman, it can't last more than 40 years. <laughs> that was enough to send him in a tailspin, I'm afraid. <laughs> but in fact, what is 40 years? What is one lifetime? It all has to end sooner or later. And if you can really live right now and not think about what's happening yesterday, tomorrow, and so on, it, it doesn't matter how long anything lasts. In fact, I've had, in writing my, um, in working on Master's Whispers for Maternity and doing my editing on it, I have found that I can relate to so many of those things because as his disciple and learning his teachings, I have lived those things. And again and again, I find in those beautiful whispers this thought that, what does it matter if I have to go through lifetimes of suffering knowing that thou art at the end? There's a beautiful story about Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, who one time, um, he was asking, he was being asked by different ones of his disciples, when will I find God? And some of them he told them, you will find him in this life. Others he said, it will take you another lifetime or another two or three lifetimes, and they were oh, oh, moaning. And he had a very close and very highly advanced disciple who was not in the room at the time. And he called him in. 
And uh, this disciple, I forget whether you asked him or, some, or somebody urged him to ask. I don't remember all the details of the story. Maybe you people know it. But ask the um, uh, Chaitanya, when will I find God? And Chaitanya said, it will take you another million lifetimes. And this man, they saw him afterwards dancing on the porch outside. And they said, what are you doing dancing? Everybody was sort of feeling so terrible for this poor man. And he said, didn't you hear him? He promised me I would find God. What does it matter how long? That's the attitude we need to take. When you have that attitude, and that's what happened in this case, he, Mahaprabhu Chaitanya touched him and he found God in that moment. When you can have that sense that you have him now, that time doesn't exist, that it's eternal, then he can come to you just like that. He can strip away all the veils of delusion. We need to live in the present. Don't worry. When will I find God? When? You'll never find him as long as you have that feeling. But you can find him easily if you understand that he's with you right now. And he's blissful. And it's so absolutely thrilling when you feel that bliss to look around and see that everything expresses that bliss. Yes, the cockroaches even, and the bed bugs, and everything. There's this beautiful story about, uh, from the life of the, in the story of the hiding place. When this, you know the story, these two Jews were protecting, uh, the, I don't know if they were Jews, they were Dutch people protecting Jews from the Nazi persecution in Holland. And they, the Nazis finally discovered the hiding place and uh, uh, sent these two sisters to a concentration camp. And this older sister was a real saint. And one time they uh, were in the camp and the guard in the camp was taking people around visitors. And the, these people had been in their, in their uh, little cabin. Um, they had, the sister had been saying, we must be grateful for everything. Here they were in a concentration camp. And look, when I lecture, I'm always going off on sidetracks. Here's another sidetrack. But I always come back. <laughs> Master was sitting in a, uh, with some of the disciples at some sort of concert. And there was a little girl in front of him. And uh, he said to Miramata afterwards, I noticed you're looking at that little girl. And he said, yes, Master, I don't know why, but I was fascinated by her. Master said, that's because she's a saint. In her last life, she died in a Nazi concentration camp. But she lived in such a way that now she's a saint. And so this girl also, this older sister, in the concentration camp, they said to her, when she said, we must be grateful for everything, and they were thinking, to be grateful in a concentration camp? Yes, be grateful for what God gives you. You will find that it alleviates your suffering when you do. In fact, you will end up saying, what suffering? It doesn't exist when you get that attitude. But they said, even for the fleas in this barrack? She said, yes, for everything. And a few days later, this guard came around with some visitors, and they were just about to go into this cabin, this barrack. 
in which they were all gathered in prayer, when she stopped at the door and said, let's not go into here, there are too many fleas. <laughs> so you see, it was the fleas that kept them from being exposed and being, being executed. We must understand that everything that comes to us, and I think I can speak from considerable personal experience, but I know that you all have experienced suffering in one way or another. When they say happy as a clam, I think the expression is because clams don't experience anything, but that's not happiness. <laughs> to know happiness is to know suffering also. You can't help it. It's a part of the duality of nature. For every up, there has to be a down. For every joy, there has to be a sorrow. For every happiness, there has to be an unhappiness. And so I speak, I think, for all of us. That it passes. It doesn't last. The clouds go, and then there's sunshine again. And yes, clouds come back again. And you finally, after God knows how many lifetimes, end up thinking, what anguishing monotony, as Master called it. And you think, I've had enough of this. I have had enough of looking for happiness, finding it, and suddenly finding it crash again, and then looking for it again. <laughs> and it just goes on and on until finally you think, I've had enough. But when you finally realize that neither happiness nor pleasure, nor, un nor displeasure nor suffering, neither joy nor suffering, neither light nor darkness, nothing can define you, then you find yourself sinking more and more into yourself. And yes, it begins with the ego, but behind that veil of ego, once you've gotten rid of all these self-definitions, mind you, ego is not wrong, it's all you've really got. But you've got to define it and understand it in the right way. And that means not to keep piling it with self-definitions. Another definition is what you've learned and done. People are psychological antiques. Well, as I always say. <laughs> How many times have you heard people saying that? Why do you always have to say anything? <laughs> you know, I've given thousands and thousands of talks, lectures and everything. I never repeat myself. I probably say the same thing in one way or another many times, but I never prepare a talk. I never remember what I've said <laughs> because I want to live now and I want it just to happen as it happens. And it's much more fun that way if I have to always say the same thing. <laughs> I mean, some people go around giving their lecture and it's the same blasted lecture wherever they talk. They're psychological antiques. Live in the now. Live in who you are right now. Live in what you are right now. Don't think, well, when you've lived as long as I have, <laughs> when you're my age, what age are you? Little children, they know quite a lot. They hide it often. You know, if a little child in a family, let's say, of three children, <clears throat> and the parents die, the oldest one has to take care of the youngest ones, suddenly becomes quite mature. They like playing children. Lucked me when little, um, her little child was a little baby. She was trying to get him to grow up a little bit, to be potty trained or something or other. And uh, he said, come on, you're not a baby. But I like being a baby. <laughs> <laughs> I 
And so we like being children, and we like being what we are. And that's why we define ourselves with what you are, but that's not who you are. You are the immortal Atman. And as you saw in that play, Friday night, just what do you mean by that? <laughs> you are the eternal spirit. And so don't have self-definitions of time or space. You are not a woman. You are not a man. You are not young. You are not old. Where you live, you know, you were born in one country and you think you are that country, but you could be in all countries. It's, I have lived in so many countries, and I have seen that the people everywhere basically want the same things. If they live in India, they may like curry and rice. If they live in America, they may like potato chips or beef or something. If they live in Italy, they may like pasta. But it's all, they all want to feed themselves. And the taste is very secondary, and you develop your tastes. But we must get rid of this, this thought that we have any self-definition at all. Don't let anybody tell you you're this kind of person, because you're not. Temporarily, you may have developed those habits, but any time you try to define yourself as that type, you become a psychological antique. When you die, the angels will say, well, here's another antique. We'd better send him back there. <laughs> you have to come back again and again until you finally can strip away all this incrustation and realize that you are that little germ. You know, behind the eyes of a human being, behind his body, behind everything, there's this little germ of eye centered here. And you know a very interesting thing. When Master in his uh, chapter on, in Autobiography of a Yogi, was writing on his experience of cosmic consciousness, he said another very interesting thing. He said, I cognize the center of this empyrean as a point of intuitive perception in my heart. So the center of ego is here, but the center of intuition and chitta, of real feeling, is here. And we need to awaken that feeling. We need to direct that feeling upward. We need to bring reason and feeling into a harmonious balance. And then we begin to feel that this little ego, which is all you can ever claim for yourself, that little tiny germ that has somehow managed to develop uh, bodies around it, this thought that a computer will someday be self-aware is absolutely ridiculous. It can reason. It can reason, be taught to reason better than you and I, if you program it right. But I remember that movie, 2001, A Space Age Odyssey. All these creeps walking around, just totally intellectual. There were two women in it, and they too were just as dry as the men. The only real person was Hal, the computer. <laughs> That's not the way I want our future to be. Dryly intellectual. Yeah, I can figure that out. Sure, I know that. Oh, yeah. Have heart. You know, reading this, this uh, Whispers from Eternity and reading it and identifying with it, because I see that it's just so much expresses what I've had to go through in my life.
And then, well, there are things that Master wrote that really don't make sense when he said things like the uh, self-shattering noise, the home of noise, the self-shattering noise of home of noise. Can you figure out what that means? It, I finally figured out that one thing that would say it was a factory and the assembly line. But what I mean to say is that when you're feeling absolute bliss, it just pours out of you and you don't have to make sense. And there are many passages in Whispers which you can, if you get in tune with him, you can feel his deep intuition, his deep outpouring of bliss. But you just can't be bothered about all these details. And so the bird of time can be trudging through the mud of, <laughs> of subconscious submarine delusion or something. <laughs> he didn't actually say that, but he said things somewhat comparable. And you could sort of snicker and think, oh my goodness, didn't he know what he was talking about? But I understand his spirit. It was just an outpouring of bliss where you just don't care about little details because they're of this world, you see that bliss runs like a thread through every little bead in that necklace of life. And uh, that was how he was writing that book, which makes it, in my mind, one of the greatest books ever written. And I hope that I am doing it, and I feel that I am doing it justice, because I feel him working through me, because I have a more pedestrian mind. I am more leaden bound to this earth, and so I can trudge through all the burden of logic and everything and put it all together and make sense out of it. But I know what he was feeling. It was just an outpouring of this absolute bliss and love. That's what we need. Get rid of this ego, and then you suddenly discover that you aren't the ego. When you can strip away the last little encasing, kosha, you know, another funny thing, another sidetrack. <laughs> Ram was teaching, are you here, Ram? <laughs> in Italy. And he was saying, you have to get rid of the koshas. Well, in Italy, kosha means thigh. <laughs> so he was saying, you have to get rid of the thighs of ignorance. <laughs> and they were all, <laughs> what's this guy talking about? But you have to get rid of these sheaths, these koshas of consciousness, of identity. And when you do, you find that they have all created veils around yourself. And when you get to the center of it, you find that the, there are no veils and they, that you are, there is no time or space. You're everywhere. And so the, although there's also this expansion of consciousness, it's an expansion into what you really are. That's why that poem, Samadhi, is one that Master told us to memorize. Think about it every day of your life. Bring it into your heart. Know that that is what you are. You are not an individual. You will see people. I see some of you, and I know that you're old friends of mine. And I know that you're all very dear to me. But this is still in Maya. We are all one in Him. And if I have anything that I can share with you, which I have drawn from Master, because I was an arrogant young fool when I was young, 
It was he who showed me these things. And yet what he showed me was, you know, you can't teach anybody anything. All you can bring things, all you can do is bring things back to their remembrance. That is why Patanjali describes divine awakening as smriti, memory. You go into that and you suddenly remember, oh, of course I knew that. I've always known that. Yes, you have. That's why people are so much wiser than they know. That's why when they slump, they're down. And when they're sitting up straight and standing straight, they're up. They know all these things, but they haven't. it's not dynamic to their consciousness. But once you have achieved that state, you suddenly recognize it all. That's what that wonderful poem, Samadhi, will do. It's not enough to read these things. When you, def when you feel in meditation divine love or divine joy, you don't think, well, let me write this down. Let's see. No. It seems so absolutely natural. You wondered how you could never have seen it before. And so when these veils are stripped away, you and I and everyone will know that we've always been that. And we were afraid of getting rid of this ego because what we really didn't want to do is get rid of our stupid self-definitions, which limit you. You're living in a little prison of self-definition. And when you can break the bars of that prison and come out, you know, I asked Master once about this, and he said that when you go into meditation, at first there's this fear, like a bird that's been in a cage and it's been in that cage for 20 years. You open the door to the cage, and the bird's afraid to come out. And then maybe seeing the cage open, it sort of hops around, finds itself outside, <laughs> runs back into its cage. And then it runs out, goes outside again, and it finds that the cat's not getting it. It's sitting there, perched, perfectly happy. But the cat might get it, and it rushes back again. <laughs> and then after a while, it goes outside, and it begins to... Oh, wow, I can fly! And it takes off and never bothers about that cage again. And so we must be, we must come out of our cage of self-definition and understand that we, in our inner self, have the power to fly. That's not pride. That's not the false ego. The true self, the true ego, is the self of all. This is why you know, there's a justification for cruelty. I was understanding it today, just taking my shower and seeing a little little insect which I wanted to see drowned. I wasn't cruel, but uh, I thought it doesn't belong in my bathroom. <laughs> and I thought, what makes me think that way? That's not right. It too is my own self. I let it drown, I'll have to admit. <laughs> but at the same time, I could understand how people can find pleasure in beating each other. It's really an affirmation, I'm not that. But it's a stupid affirmation, it's an ignorant affirmation. They aren't this either, and that's what they don't know. Neti, neti, I'm nothing! And in being nothing, you are everything. So. Get into your inner self and know from that self, and this is a very interesting thing, because when you rest in yourself, you suddenly discover that you can understand other people. 
You can't understand them when you're analyzing them and, well, let's see, she's a woman, she's got long hair, um, I like the color of her eyes, but I wish it were a little bit different. Her mouth doesn't quite smile quite enough, and all these things that you do to define other people. When you get rid of that and understand them from your heart to their heart, you understand them from within. You feel that you, you can feel their suffering. You can feel their joy. We must, as devotees, try to develop that attitude that we feel our pain and our pleasure, our sorrow and our joy in other people so that when they feel joy, you feel tears of joy in yourself. When they feel longing for God, you too feel this longing in them. And when you see them suffering, you have this longing to help them to get there because you can feel that they are in this. And it doesn't stop with that. Anything that you want to do or understand, it has a center too. God is center everywhere, circumference nowhere. When you want an inspiration, I found this again and again. For instance, in writing music, as I talked about just the other day, I try to get <clears throat> into the center of the inspiration I'm trying to achieve. From my center to that center, when I feel myself there, the song comes automatically. I've never written. I don't know the rules of music. I've never written, uh, never studied, as I told you. And a string quartet is among the most sophisticated kinds of music you can write. I don't know how I wrote it. I just told God I thought I would like to write a string quartet. And I got to the center of what I wanted to do. And then I heard these instruments playing. And I thought, well, let's make this like a cooperative community so that you don't have the melody only in the, viol the first violin, but that all four of the instruments play off each other like a cooperative community. Each one gets a chance for its own voice. And so I've, if you listen to the quartet, you'll see if that's what I've done. And I've give, given everybody a chance to play a melody or a counter melody. But it, I didn't have to write it. I did the whole thing in a day. It just comes to you. You'll find this with everything that you do. When Master was cooking, he put his mind here. And he tasted here. He didn't have to taste the food. Anything that you want, people have wondered, how can you write so fast? How can you do things so fast? You know, Padma, many years ago, I had written in one month about eight books. Sounds crazy, but three of them were secrets books, which can go pretty quickly. But anyway, for some reason, may have been seven, anyway. <laughs> it was our 20th anniversary, 1988. This is our 40th anniversary. 2008, which we are celebrating this year. And Padma said, wouldn't it be wonderful if you could write something about communities for our celebration? I had finished my month of seclusion in which I had written such intensive, so intensively, and I had other duties looming up before me in a week. And I said, Padma, I can't do this in a week. Just give me a chance to sort of bridge from my seclusion to activity. And so she's a woman who doesn't let you. <laughs> I notice many of you are laughing. <laughs> Where is Padma? Where? Padma. <laughs> I'll tell you the truth. You can be exasperating. <laughs> 
and I bless you. <laughs> because it's needed also. And so what you were doing to me <laughs> was, I have to confess, also for me. And all you said was, instead of pityingly said, yes, I understand, well, never mind, all she said was, well, it would be wonderful. <laughs> and I got back to my room and I thought, yeah, it would be wonderful. <clears throat> but I can't. I couldn't possibly write a book like that, meaning it would mean a lot of thinking and a lot of planning. And the books I had written often, many of them were, were rewrites and so on, but to do in one week with a whole other program coming up, not possible. And then I thought, well, she's right. It would be wonderful. I can't do it, but Master, you can do it. So I said, all right, Master, I will let you try. I will try to let you, let's put it that way. <laughs> and I just opened the floodgates of my mind and didn't allow any critical faculty or anything to stop. I just let it flow. On the second day, Muktan, who I don't think is here, but he was working with our electricity, and he came into the uh, closet across from my office and uh, was doing something with the electricity and shut off the electricity to my office by mistake. I lost my entire day's output on my computer. Everything crashed. And I was so discouraged. I lost not only that day, but the next day. And then the third day I thought, well, I've got to keep trying. So I sort of summoned up all my willpower and threw myself into it. In those five days, I wrote Cities of Light. And the first two chapters needed a little editing. Nothing else seemed to need editing. You will be amazed if you allow God to work through you and get rid of this thought of time. It was because I, I decided I can't think in terms of time. I'll just see if I can do it. You must get rid of this thought of time that says, oh, it takes time, I can't do it now. That's what I was thinking then. I can't do it so quickly. Forget about that. You can, you'll find that you can do things instantly if you get rid of that hypnosis of it's taking time. When Master found Mount Washington and heard how much money he had to come up with in just three months, people were saying it'll take you th three years to get that kind of money. He said, three years to those who think, to think three years, three months to those who think three months, one month to those who think one month. And that's how it came. You must think out of time. You'll find that you, you'll be amazed at what you can accomplish. Think out of space, and you'll be amazed at how many things you can tune into. I was going to from my house to the expanding light to uh, give a concert with some of our people. And you said, I said, and you know, it's amazing to me, but I just have to put my mind in tune with the bhav, the sort of mood or attitude, consciousness of a country, and suddenly the music comes. I said, for instance, just I was just with, uh, um, who was it? Uh, Uma and uh, Krishnadas then. And was that right? No, somebody anyway. Whoever it was, I remember Krishnadas was one of them. I went to the piano, excuse me. I went to the piano, and I said, let's just put my fingers on the keys and see if I can't find a melody for something Japanese. Instantly it came to me. 
I played it that same, but it just came like that. I can't claim credit for it. But I can say that when I don't identify myself with one culture, one country, one type of thinking, suddenly I find myself, people are, God is everywhere. And you can feel God everywhere. You can get in tune with so many different bobs. And then there comes another thing. And this is something else that Master pointed out in Whispers. Then you must make sure you're getting in tune with the right thing. Because there are many bobs, many states of consciousness that you can put yourself in tune in and under with and understand, but they don't work. That was what scared me onto the spiritual path. <laughs> the realization suddenly that I could be anything. I could be a drunkard. I could be a murderer. I have within me the human potential to sink to all levels, to be all things. And I was absolutely terrified of my own downward potential. And I thought I, I was desperate to find God. And I was desperate to never make another mistake, knowing in my soul that I must have made so many. And I didn't want to make another again. I didn't know about reincarnation, but I did know these things in my soul. So you have the potential that all men have. And we can say that you are specializing on, the, on behalf of the whole human race in being yourself. God has been all these things, but he's specializing in being you in you. And so always when you see that potential and identify with that potential, keep that reign of discrimination there too to say that this is a good path to follow, that is not a good path to follow. And that is why... Above all, keep the company of saints. Keep the company of good people. This is the supreme benefit of living in a community because environment is stronger than willpower. The people we are with influence us whether we like it or not. And if you can be, at least in your mind, somebody said to me, what if I'm alone? Said to Master, I should say, what if I'm alone? And Master said, am I not always with you? Master is always with you in your heart. God is always with you in your heart. You're never alone. Never think that way. When you are alone, chant to God. Think of Him in your presence. Keep His company. And this, above all, is something that I said and through the storyteller in that play, that we need to because the ego cannot jump out of this little pit into the infinite without having somebody to guide it. You're standing on the edge of an abyss, and all you see is that deep chasm, and you pull back because you don't know how to get out. Bhishma gave up his ego, but how could he do it? Because Krishna was there. You can only 
release your ego into God when you can get onto that raft of divine consciousness, which is the purpose of the Guru. He has come with his boat to this world that we may get into that boat. He hasn't come to make, him, make us himself, make us reflect himself. He's come to empower us when we can float with him on that water. We don't lose who we are. He is taking us to those divine shores. And when we get there, it's by his help that we get there. And that is why sometimes a disciple even becomes greater than the guru. I know of one such case in India. But he always honors the guru still, because it was through the guru that he reached there. The guru is an absolute essential if you want to find God. And what about those saints who have found him without it? Because they had it already. When you've attained that state and you're reborn, well, you don't need that. Master went through it. Ramakrishna went through it with Tutapuri. Other great world saviors have done that to set an example to others. But indeed, at that point, you don't need it. But until you have gotten out of your ego, you do need it. Because you will be standing on that abyss, afraid of crashing. He can be there. It will be a w lake of water. And he can come and take you in his boat over that lake to the divine shore. The way is to be in tune with his consciousness. And how to be in tune with his consciousness? As I said, there is within us the potential to err infinitely. And so I have found it always a great help with anything that I want to do, to ask Master, what should I do? What would you do? What do you want me to do? And I have found that more and more that guidance comes so that when you think to go this direction, I remember one time I had thought to write a letter to somebody. It was a reproving letter, and I wanted to be helpful, but evidently it would not have been helpful because as I was just finishing it, I felt, no, I mustn't. It won't help. And so I didn't. I threw the letter away. But you mustn't just at that point, oh, blunder, oh, the heck with it, I'll do it anyway. Don't. Your divine guidance may take you to the next corner, but at that point it may take you right. And if you just go blundering straight through, you may enter in a marsh. <coughs> Always, every moment of your life, even if you have felt a divine guidance to do this, don't think that tomorrow or in the next moment it may not be, okay, now this way, this way. You'll find that you're, you can be fine-tuned. One time I was starting to say something in a lecture, and I stopped, and I said, no, I don't feel Master wants me to say that. When you can ask inwardly, and that's what his help is really for. It's not his physical body. It was a great blessing for me and a few of us to live with that physical body. But it's gone. And very few people who knew him are still alive. And so what about you poor slobs? <laughs> well, you have to get it through people who knew him. That baton has to be passed. But you must understand that his is the power that is still active, because he was a divine avatar. It was his ray that I am bringing. It's not that I've taken over and no, no longer need him. I can only transmit his ray, which he brought into this world. And you can only transmit that same ray to the extent that you understand that that is what you are transmitting. Otherwise, this stupid Kriyananda wouldn't give you anything.
You know, you look at a stained glass window, every glass is a different color. And yet it's the same sunlight. And another wonderful example was when I was working in that little office of mine in my bedroom, there was a big picture window outside the office, uh, 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 on one side of my bedroom. My desk looked out over it. <clears throat> and I used to enjoy the plants and the beautiful garden outside. One day there was a heavy rainstorm and it splattered mud on the window so that every time I tried to enjoy the garden, I saw all this mud on the window. And uh, I think that if I had been a woman, I would have gotten out immediately. But this is men. <coughs> and I waited for a free Saturday. It was two weeks before I finally got out there and clean, cleaned that window. But then I stepped back and I said, oh, what a beautiful window. And then I laughed because I saw I couldn't see the window anymore. I could see through it. What makes people beautiful is that God can shine through them. What will make you beautiful is the more that God can shine through you. And what makes people beautiful who are on a particular divine path sent by God, and it isn't as through every saint that he sends a path, but ours is a path sent by our line of gurus. And I can only represent that line of gurus. I can't represent anything else. That's what God has drawn me to. And that, if you feel it, is what God has drawn you to. And I want all of you to be radiant lights of that ray so that everybody that you meet shines uh, with the ray that you send him. But I want you always to know that it's not you who are doing it. As I know, it's not I who am doing it. And I don't want you to think that it is because that would be a mistake. I'm just a window. I said this to Ananda Morima one time, that you're really a window for Divine Mother. And she laughed. She said, I've been called many things before, but never a window. <laughs> but I, I know she knew what I meant. <clears throat> she used to love to joke with me. But the thing is that we need to polish this window and let God shine through us. And he can do it through every one of you. And I have seen over the years, now we've been here 40 years, and I've seen this light growing in so many of you. And it's an absolute blissful blessing to me to see that change in you. Master is alive, and he is working in this world. And this ray that he has brought to this planet is something that will be a transforming power in the world. Take it seriously. Understand that through this little window of your ego, and you'll never find it through anybody else, what does it matter if you find me inspiring? Get inspiration in yourself. Be that yourself. Don't look elsewhere. I then become an excuse for you not working. Get into yourself. Understand who you are. You are that. You are who must shine with that same light. And the more you do so, the more you will find in yourself the channel is blessed by that which flows through it, Master said. And you will find that blessing just increasing in life until everything you see is beautiful. But don't hold it selfishly to yourself. Master said the greatest prayer is give me thyself that I may give thee to all. Share what you have. 
<clears throat> and it will expand and grow. Clutch what you have to yourself, and it will diminish, and if not die, at least become small. Know that God is in you, and he empowers you, and wants to empower you. We are living in a world where there is a constant battle of Kurukshetra, and it is not only within ourselves, it is also outward. There are the forces of Maya, always at work, always trying to draw people away from their own highest happiness into drunkenness, into greed, into all the delusions that men get into. Be on the side of the angels. There is a war in heaven. Be on the right side. And you will find that even though this world has to go through much suffering, you can bring light to all and be their blessing. Joy to you.